I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Ladies and gentlemen, the orange crop estimates for the next year. Show me the money. After calculating the estimates for the various orange-producing states, we have concluded the following. Show me the money! The cold winter has apparently not affected the orange harvest. <laughs> Good afternoon, Pound Nation, and welcome back to episode 9 of Pounding the Table. It's Labor Day, so Pounders, just sit back, grab yourself a beer. Yeah, Avi, I see you having one right now. Oh yeah, baby, some triple dry IPA broccoli from the other half. So while you guys kick back, we'll be out here just like Rihanna. Huge shout out to Doug E. Fresh and his wife for having a new baby girl. Last week, Tony even used the word diddle on the podcast, so I can't stop thinking about that. While Avi's out here learning new words, there's been a ton of excitement over here at Peak Life Capital. So, Tony, hit our fans with that boring disclaimer so we can start the show. Yeah, I think I got to tell our audience a little bit about what the word diddle means. It's actually brought to my attention by my little brother. So, you know, diddle is just kind of when you get screwed unceremoniously. You know, uh, some people might have gotten diddled in the last few weeks if they didn't hear our podcast calling the market top but we'll talk about that later in a few more minutes and now let's give you that boring disclaimer so we can get really started the thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investments everything said on every episode of pounding the table as well as our twitter account are not and should never be used as financial advice recommendations or solicitations for those of you who are new pounding the table is a podcast by avi mash and yours truly talking about the stock market the art of options trading And each week we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted by it. That is right, Tony. And last week we mentioned that we wanted some new logos for Pounding the Table. So I know you love Fiverr, the stock, Tony, but I'd really prefer not to have to go to Fiverr. Hopefully Pound Nation can send in some great logos. I know we got some artistic followers. So Let's rock and roll, folks. Please send those our way. We will get you some swag. Any of the Thesis Pounder Pick winners will also get that swag. So if you guys do like our show, please hit that support button on Anchor. Your donations are going to help to continue the show. So let's get rocking and rolling, Tony. Last week, you called the top. You said it was right in the range of 3550 to 3600 would be the top. 3587, I think, on the dime uh, is when we started falling here. So how did you see that? And, and more importantly, where are we going to go from here? I, I certainly got wrecked a little bit last week. Thankfully, I did move into stocks. So, of course, that's not dead money as an options trading. But what, what can we expect here? Are we going to be nosediving here or can we expect some ripper magoos? Yeah, I'm absolutely, I'm very happy to talk about that. And it's actually really great that we got out that episode at the time that we did. I mean, I know a lot of people listened to our predictions on what that would happen there right around the 3550 to 3600 range. So congrats to those people who positioned their portfolio well, managed their risk and even played the downside. I know a lot of people were buying SPY puts and VXX calls 
you know, playing the downside and also the, the spike in volatility that came. I just want to say starting out here, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. You know, obviously when the market's running, all we really talk about is which stocks we think are going to run the most, right? And now it's an episode more of there's volatility that's back in the market. We finally had the drop that we called last week. So now it's going to be a little bit more about, you know, figuring out what to do next, how to manage yourself if you're still in a little bit of a bind because you didn't sell anything or you've got a lot of exposure you're trying to like mitigate. Yeah, I'm really glad we got the last episode out when we did because a lot of people heeded our warning and actually positioned themselves very well for this market drop between 3550 and 3600. And you know, the reason why I had that target, you know, people were saying, "Why do you have a whole 50 point target range?" Well, you know, a lot of the time targets can overshoot. So you want to think, well, my target really was 3550, 3554 to be exact. But I gave it a plus or minus of 50 there, obviously a plus since I was going for a top on the upside. And for me, that was a lot easier to gauge where we're going to be. Because if you can get caught in, you know, the market continuing to run higher past your target, you might completely change your opinions on what you want to do right there. So it's good to give yourself a little bit of leg room and think, well, Maybe I'm right, but who knows? I'm not going to be right to the exact number every time. So that's why I like giving target ranges. In terms of what I think the market's going to be doing in the future, there's a few reasons we dropped, and I'm going to talk about that in the coming minutes. But to start out, you know, I was looking at this megaphone pattern on the S&P 500. So you see that back in 2018 and then back in 2020, earlier in March. So those two chart patterns lined up perfectly, and they created a nice little upward channel. And we actually topped out when we broke over that channel and then flushed right down the next day. So for me, I was thinking, well, there's not that many people trading in the markets because it is summer. It's not a lot of volume when that goes on. But when you see that everyone on Twitter, everyone on stock twits and you know, anything FinTwit related, people were all posting this megaphone chart. So even if it doesn't have anything to do with technicals, if the entirety of the investor base is looking at that exact chart thinking, wow, that could be the top there's a good chance that that's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, even though we did drop, we have things like, you know, COVID's getting better and better. We're seeing less cases and less deaths. More people are going back to work. Unemployment numbers are getting better. Housing market is rolling. You know, like we see Redfin doing really well. RKT, you know, even though they dropped, they did super well in their quarter for selling house mortgages and stuff. So in my opinion, I don't really think this is the beginning of another March kind of crash. And, you know, once again, the Fed can step in at any time. In fact, the first day we started dropping, the Fed already said, well, there's more we can do. So you know that they kind of are there to have your back if things get really, really out of whack. But I don't really think it's going to get that bad. Cool. <laughs> All right. Love hearing that, Tony. That's some, some good news. I know we got a little bit demolished, uh, me personally, last week. Of course, you did a little bit better. So we'll talk about what you did there. But one of my favorite books is Moby Dick. And so here at Pounding the Table, we're a little more sensitive to animal safety. So put those harpoons away, Tony. And let's go whale watching here. There was a lot of rumors out there on some of those heavy buyers last week. And after some failed investments in WeWork, Uber, still, you know, we'll see what happens there. But record losses of $9.1 billion last quarter. We are not talking about Mario Kart, but we are talking about Masayoshi's son and SoftBank, of course. So... Break down what happened last week, and can we expect more of this in the future? Yeah, this was one of the most interesting things I've seen in the market. And, and, and I know the last six months have just been world-class craziness. So a lot of people were talking about why is the VIX rising when the market's rising. So even though people were buying a ton of these upside calls, you had a lot of retail investors playing these out-the-money call options for this like really, really big rip, uh, risk-on kind of move. 
you still had the VIX rising, like very similar to what it did in 2000 with the NASDAQ. But also, you know, going along with that, you have to think who's the buyer, right? Who's the one pumping this market? Obviously, we talk about Robinhood traders, and that's a huge part of it. And the other retail people who opened five times the number of the investment accounts at these different brokerages. But one big whale really can move the market. And it's obviously not just one big whale by itself. There's always other people hopping on the trade or going in the same direction. So so in these times of the market being not as super voluminous as they usually are, you know, there's less people, less money, not people, but less money being pumped into these stocks. And especially this has been happening for the last six months as we've seen a ton of money being on the sidelines. So we really want to talk about here is SoftBank, which has been unmasked as the big whale who is buying all these big tech leader call options and stocks. So I'll give you guys a little bit of the scoop of what happened here. I read this really interesting article and I thought I would just take some information off of it. Um, we'll post the article in the description too, so you guys can read it for yourselves. But basically, SoftBank, uh, led by Masayoshi Son, bought options tied to around $50 billion worth of individual tech stocks. Uh, that's, that's a lot of money. You know, it's not small money. Investors and analysts aware of the activity, but in the dark as to who is behind it, says it turbocharged the tech sector, whose sheer size drives broader markets. Like, as we say this all the time, S&P 500 is made up of these five big stocks, like 25% of the whole S&P 500 is Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix, Google. And the same with the QQQs, that's like 42 to 45% now is made up by those big five stocks, which is essentially the NASDAQ. So that really is moving these indices a lot. And just these big companies, which you've really been seeing this since the bottom in March. I uh, just continue on the SoftBank story here. So regulatory filings show that SoftBank bought nearly $4 billion of shares in these tech giants. So I was just listening to the Amazons, Microsoft, Netflixes um, in this last spring. Plus, they also had a massive stake in Tesla. Not included in those disclosures is the massive options trade, which is built to pay off if the stock market rises to a certain level and then lock in the gains. So basically what happens is these guys bought a ton of stocks. They bought a ton of call options. They bought more stocks and they pumped the market up. And obviously, again, a lot of people are saying, oh, it's all SoftBank. That's not really the case, but they definitely added fuel to the upside fire there. They bought roughly an equal amount of call options tied to the underlying shares that they bought, as well as other names. You know, They didn't just buy these big five. They obviously were profiting from things that had higher beta and moving more. So it also sold call options at far higher prices. So once again, what they're doing here is such a multi-layered strategy. They buy stocks, they buy calls, they buy more stocks, and then they sell further out the money calls that when they sell the stocks and when they sell those closer to the money or in the money, potentially, if they've risen enough stocks, that short option will also produce profits for them when the market drops because they're getting out. It's very interesting there. They had a really like smart plan doing all of this, in my opinion. Just a handful of these massive tech stocks do make up all these indices. So that's why you saw the market explode crazy high. And you know, to go with the same timing here is the market over 3,400. That's the all-time high. There hasn't really been any volume above that. So when the market goes over there, it can move a lot quicker because there's not many levels to get through. So a little bit of market fuckery, if you will. Is that, would, would that be the definition of that? Yeah, I would call that a strong diddle. But you know, it's not even really illegal. And it's interesting too, because people were continuing to say, well, why is the VIX rising? Well, to zero out the exposure, options dealers, so the market makers have to buy derivatives and stocks. And in the case of call options, which is primarily what SoftBank bought, this can give stocks and indexes a boost higher. So this is kind of like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with Tesla before they split with the, the gamma infinity squeeze where it keeps rising. So um, market makers have to buy shares to hedge the call side and this and that. So that's why it exploded like crazy. So what happened here was enough money was pumped in that this kind of happened over some of the biggest stocks in the market in this lower volatility time during the summer. Our buddy uh, Dan, so at Sheik Tall, you guys may remember him from 
one of the best thesis picks we've ever had on the show. And actually the first one with Overstock O, but Sheikdal just recently said, hey, the danger here is the creation of this monumental bubble that could pop when the underlying is devalued. On the other hand, though, the FCF, so free cash flow situation with 0% rates makes any asset more attractive than it ever was in 2019. Super interesting situation. Would love to hear your take, Tony. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great question because I was just thinking about this myself and I posted a tweet earlier saying, well, why wouldn't SoftBank run it back and do it one more time? You know that they made four or $5 billion doing this little thing that they did recently in the last couple of weeks. So in my opinion, because they have so many investments in these venture capital startups, these smaller companies, also sometimes bigger companies, you know, we talk about WeWork and Uber, some of their failed investments. That is an opportunity for them to continue to make money and then reinvest into more and more of their different VC choices to boost their big fund, the SoftBank Vision Fund, which is over $100 billion in assets. Really interesting, though, because if you think about the position that SoftBank is in, their shares plummeted super strongly in March. And the company announced a major shift in strategy that it would unload more than $40 billion in legacy assets. And that number is now more than 50 billion. And it includes the sale of their stakes in T-Mobile, some sales of Alibaba, and also their Japanese telecom unit for SoftBank. And much of that cash was originally earmarked for share buybacks and debt redemption, but SoftBank paused these buybacks in March. After that announcement, the shares rocketed higher. Mr. Sun said SoftBank's in no hurry to repurchase more of its $47 billion in bonds since the company has enough cash to cover all the redemptions for the next two years. So this could, you know, create a you know a bubble in some terms, but in my opinion, Nothing, none of this is a bubble. When you look at the interest rates and you're saying, I'm not going to get any yields investing in these super safe, riskless, and I'm doing the bunny quotes around my fingers, treasury yields, the stock market's a much more attractive place to get yield and growth. If you can't really put your money in other things and make money, why wouldn't you put your money in things that are expected to make future earnings growth and are making money currently? So in my opinion, yes, yeah, SoftBank could run it back and I don't think it will create a bubble. And you know, as Dan said, the situation with zero rates makes any other asset more attractive than it was in 2019. So people are not going to be shelling out tons of cash to buy these treasuries. Jim Peppers also said the conglomerate continue gobbling up options. A person familiar with SoftBank's trades told the Financial Times, the whale is still hungry. And it's said that they unloaded their positions here. Hence, where we now wash, rinse, and repeat. I agree with that logic, honestly. And if people know that SoftBank can have this kind of moves impact on the market, why wouldn't they do it themselves? Or even better, why wouldn't they collude to be able to make this even a stronger rally on the upside? Recently, we saw Davey Day Trader had lost $1 million. So we're talking about Dave Portnoy, always slamming down his gavel. We should definitely probably get him a uh, pound in the mm-hmm. table gavel as a nice little giveaway here. So he's famous for saying stocks only go up. Uh, however, last week, of course, we saw that is not necessarily true. But there is a way to manage that risk, right? So let's break it down a little hedging one-on-one for some folks. We had a ton of questions here. Number one was from Dr. Nick. First, he gave you a a nice little accolade, said, great call on the sell-off. I threw some money in the VXX on Thursday. Not enough, but still helps the blow. Do you think we're going to go head back into bull territory on Tuesday, or do we have more to go? Uh, Another question came in here from at DK Poirier. Is there any re-entry rules do you follow on stopped out positions? And finally, JK Bronco had asked, only people who did well had the hedges, right? So I imagine if you had a bunch of puts on the S&P, he has not learned how to navigate that quite yet. But he's asking, do you have a position size for your hedge? He gave the example, if you own 100K in SE, so C-limited, how do you hedge that? And how much are you risking as a hedge? 
These are all great questions. And I'm really glad that we also spent another section on this last week talking about hedging. Perfect timing there, honestly. But in terms of these questions, Dr. Nick talking about getting into the VXX, that's a great play for volatility, right? Anytime the market goes down, people want to buy these triple leverage short ETFs and they want to, you know, long these yeah, they want to buy these triple leverage short ETFs and they want to short these triple leverage um, bullish ETFs, which are not a bad idea on the bullish side. But if you get caught on the reversal, you could be in for a world of hurt if it reverses and you're three times short. Um, but for me, I really like the play of just buying volatility. In the March crash, you saw the VIX go up a ton. It went all the way to 86 and it really doesn't ever go over 100. So people saw things like UVXY go 15 times in just you know a couple of weeks. You saw things like TVIX go up 30 times plus in those couple of weeks. So in my opinion, the best hedge for a strong downside move, and even not a very strong downside move, just an average downside move like we had last week, will be buying VXX calls or playing the VIX in any other way that you can think of. A lot of people like to get into these short ETFs, these triple leverage you know, ETFs up and down. And in my opinion, those have a lot of issue when you're holding them long term. They have natural decay. So it's almost like holding an option, but you're using the size of stock money that you would be trading with normally. So you have to understand that there's a lot of risk in just holding those long term. And if you're shorting a triple leverage bull ETF, and if it keeps going up, you could be in for a world of hurt because that'll expand on the upside as well. So the same thing that can hurt you if you're buying these triple leverage short ETFs, the volatility going up and down can also hurt you by you know buying these long ones. So think about that when you're just deciding whether or not you want to hedge with volatility or triple leverage ETFs. In my opinion, I would stay away from the triple leverage ETFs unless it's like a day trade. And usually play with more VXX calls or anything else to do with volatility. In terms of stops, I do use stops on some of my stock positions because what happens is as a stock goes up, I don't like to add to my losers, I like to add to my winners. So I'll buy different lots at different various movements up. And when they do come back down to that price, if I have an oversized exposure, I'll have stops on that specific lot and that'll get closed out. Some of my stock positions are up a lot, so I don't want to have any stops on those. I'd rather hold those long-term, and I always want to have a little bit in the market in case I'm wrong on the drop being severe, or in case we just drop one day and come back the next day and rally to the moon. So you never know there. And for JK Bronco, having hedges is a really big key. Those 3560 puts, which is one of the big hedges I had going into this, I think they went almost 20x at one point. Uh, and I had those for Friday. So those did very, very well. Um, I did sell those a little too early and kept rolling. So as we said in other podcasts, you want to make sure that you don't roll your hedges too many times because you end up losing money on the downside when you can just keep the hedge and take off when you think that we're bottoming. In terms of position size that I use for my hedge, let's say like he said, if I had $100,000 in SC, how do I hedge that? Well, I kind of go with the number of shares I had. So 100K in SC is you know 600 shares or so. Maybe you want to go six to 12 puts on that, depending on how bearish you are and where your cost basis is for that stock. If you think it's going to drop 20 or 30 points and you have twice the number for the number of shares, then you're going to end up making a lot of money on the downside, which you could then use to add to your position on the long side in the stock. So for me, how much I risk on my hedge is really just dependent on each stock and how far it's run and how bullish or bearish I would be if the market were to crash. And what would that imply for that specific stock? Tony, super insightful as always. I know we're super nerds and I always sit in front of our computers day trading constantly, but for normal human beings that have their own portfolio, what's like an easy hedge for an overall portfolio? Yeah. So, and, and those people who are not in front of the market every day, you really should either not look at your stocks at all and just think about the long-term five or 10 years and you don't care about the interim swings. But if you do, you know, you think, wow, my 
401k or my IRA or my account in general has gone up so much, I want to throw a little bit of diversification on there, or I want to hedge my positions for the downside. You know, if it keeps ripping, I'm going to be happy. If it goes down, I'm going to be happy. I got the hedges. So here's a couple of easy ways to do that. If you have a very diverse portfolio, right? So you're not super tech heavy. You're not super only cyclical as heavy. Like that SPY is generally like the most bland conglomerate of stocks that you can kind of pick out. You know, the SP 500 has 500 stocks. The Dow has 30. The NASDAQ has 100. So, and the NASDAQ's very, very heavy tech weighted. And the Dow is very, very like heavy value cyclical weighted. So in my opinion, SPY longer term puts are a great hedge just in general for your portfolio. If you have a very tech heavy portfolio, QQQ puts are also a really good hedge just in general, because that's gen- that's the tech market. And you saw that in the last week, the Qs went from 306 or 307 all the way down to 271 at the, at the bottom. So that's a almost a 40-point swing. Tech dropped right around 10%. So in my opinion, if you have a heavy tech portfolio, you want to hedge with a heavy tech bet on the downside, which would be QQQ. Always, as I say, volatility is your friend if the market is driving down. And also, if it's going up, you can make money sometimes. We saw that in the last week before we crashed the VIX was rallying. So VXX calls, they are very pricey if you go too far out. But if you're just betting for a few weeks out, maybe a month or two out, you can get a decent price on those options on the call side. Because as the market goes up, the VIX will rise. And uh, you know, as the market comes back down, the VIX will crash, as we saw on Friday when we reversed a little bit there. The biggest hedge, though, that I think most people overlook is cash. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, why do you say cash is a position? It's actually a really, really good position. It means that you can position into anything you want. So if you're not comfortable with how much exposure you have or how much risk, no amount of diversification and bunny quotes on this too will protect you from the downside if you have 100% invested or if you're leveraged and you have 200% invested. The amount of cash you have is the amount of money that's not going to get impacted by the market up or down. So you really want to consider how much do I want to be in? You know, How much skin do I want to have in the game? Do I want to go all in on the poker table on the last hand running the river? Or do I want to just keep ending up and playing the game? That is the difference between having cash and not having cash. Also, of course, the opportunity cost of capital. A lot of these things can drop and you can get things at way cheaper prices that can bounce back that day. You could have bought Mealy for $1,000 and it closed the day at 1090. So that's 9% move in one day if you had the cash waiting. Quick question with the Avi injection. I know there's SQQ is another instrument. So why... Do puts on QQQ versus buying calls on SQQ. Right. And I was saying that a little bit earlier, but I'll break it down a little bit more for the Avi injection because that's what it's here for. The QQQs don't have any uh, like time decay, contango, or erosion naturally in them because they're just 1x leverage. They're, they're not even really like leverage. They're just the value of the majority of the NASDAQ weighted a little differently. Um, for me, that's just a one-to-one ratio there. SQQQ is three times leveraged downside of QQQ. But when that come playing that, you have the up and the down moves. And let's say it explodes 30%. And so it goes from 10 to 13. And then it drops. So 30% from 13 is more than 30 on the downside is more than 30% from 10 on the upside. So as that continues to happen over time, that volatility will eat away at the value of SQQQ just naturally. Whereas QQQ, that doesn't happen. So that's why I'm saying watch out for those triple leverage, you know, long-term holding those. In my opinion, that's, that's not a smart move. That's a trade. That's not an investment. That is what I'm here for, folks. Everyone had that question on their mind, and I'm willing to put my neck out and ask away <laughs> for Tony. So if the market hypothetically were to continue downward, let's not call it a crash, but 
where does some of this money flow go to instead of stocks? I know in the past you had mentioned SPACs. Uh, we talked a little bit about crypto in the past. Gold is an obvious one. Or do people start to go back to growth like tech? How do we avoid being this bottom feeding, shrimp sucking and end up being a shark? How do we how do we take advantage of the situation here? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for me, you know, and that's the rule number one that we mentioned the first time at my strongest number one, you know, biggest rule of all is make sure you can trade another day. And that goes well with what I just said about having cash as a position. You can't take advantage of opportunities if you've already taken your opportunities and they're not working out for you. I might put that on a t-shirt. But in, you know, in terms of the market crashing, money does still flow places. People have to be invested most of the time in a lot of things. And of course, cash is a position, but I don't really know many people who go 100% cash at any point. So we saw a lot of these SPACs that haven't even had any merger news. They started rising because SPACs are considered at some point a flight to safety. They're tied behind real nominal dollar value. People have $4 billion in a SPAC or $2 billion in a SPAC. And until they do a merger, that money is still sitting there in that blank check company's bank account. So that's why we saw things like our favorites, IPOC and IPOB, uh, were rocking up on Friday, even though nothing had happened with their news, no merger announcement, not even a rumor. So people were clearly going into that. We saw crypto, which used to really be where people would take money out of the market or out of certain other assets and buy into crypto as like a gold hedge. But crypto is now starting to follow the markets a lot. So what I think is happening there is so much retail and so many actual like, you know, market participants of the stock market have gotten into crypto. And so I actually think crypto is going to continue to trend with the natural market. The market explodes, the stock market, the crypto market will explode. And if the converse happens, then it will dive. In terms of gold, you know, gold just hasn't really been moving nicely. It had that nice spike to 2100, which we said wasn't going to be a great opportunity to buy because it did break out of that long-term base, really similar to what the S&P 500 did. And then they just dumped it on everyone. So, you know, if you want to buy gold, sure, scale in or whatever, but I don't think it's going to be one of those huge, I made 100% in a year kind of things at all. And for hedges, like we were saying, VXX calls, SPY, QQQ puts will do a much better job of protecting your portfolio than buying an asset that didn't really go up when the market was crashing last week. For tech and cyclicals, it's really possible that people just kind of spread their money out in a diversification fashion between the SPACs, between the crypto, between gold and tech and cyclicals. It's interesting to see, though, that IWM didn't crash super heavily like the tech sector did. Um, so people are not as bearish on these value, the airlines, these kind of things. And those things were actually going up at some points during the day when the rest of the tech market was crashing. So very interesting. And you can clearly see that people are buying and selling very different things at different times. And rotations are happening, but they're not lasting as long as they have before. Keith Cohen had just asked on Twitter, what specific charts or indicators, or is there any like time frames that you're looking at for entries and, and how to cost average, when to take some money off? I know a lot of people would probably appreciate more specific insight around that subject. So Heath, love your questions and all the support you get for pounding the table. Big thanks to you. In terms of the charts that I look at, indicators and timeframes, I always like to drown out the noise by going back and adding more time to my charts. So I'll look at weekly charts or monthly charts, and I'll first look at indices overall, right? Because if the indices aren't looking strong overall, or if they're hitting major resistance or major supports, that's what I'm going to look for before I go into any specific individual stock. It's very hard for specific stocks like by themselves to go up if the market's tanking. And it's very hard for specific stocks to go down if the market's ripping. And that's just kind of the general theme of market momentum up and down. In terms of like, you know, indicators I use, I love looking at sentiment. So I see like, if on Twitter, every single person and their mom is bearish, that usually for me just can kind of make me just buy stuff just because so many people are shorting so many people are thinking we're going to go down and the market loves to ftmp 
you know, screw the most people, but the other word is F. And so for me, I like to look at the different, you know, feelings that people have too. And and you can kind of quantify that a lot of the time by using people's polls that they do, like, is the market going to go up or down in the next week? Or do you think the market's going to crash in three months or six months or whatever it is? And you can get a good gauge of what people are feeling. The timeframes, you know, the weekly, monthly charts on those indices, and even on the individual stocks, the more you drown out the noise, the further you look back and see, well, what's the trend without the individual day-to-day momentum moves gives you a good, you know, a good gauge of where to look for supply and resistance zones and where it's going to go in the future, right? You can measure moves saying, well, it moves a hundred points from the breakout. Maybe it'll move another hundred points after the breakout, you know, once it's corrected, which it has recently. In terms of dollar cost averaging and getting back into your position, it goes really well with this guy's question um, at get rich or die trying. He says on pounding the table episode eight, you mentioned you were taking off some of your longer dated option positions. With Mealy hitting about a thousand on Friday, did you look to add any March or so verticals on? So I am starting to dollar cost average and add more of my big core holdings. And some of them I got stopped out on, some of them I sold ahead of the time. But I do look to add things that I love and I know I want to hold for the next five years when they have severe drops. But I don't really want to be buying a ton of leaps right now. I think that because the VIX is still elevated from where it was recently, even though it did come down a bit, so it's getting more attractive. But if you buy leaps when the market's crashing, of course, you know, if the stock recovers, you're going to make money, but you're paying a way higher premium because the VIX is up so much. So you could almost get the same price, just a little bit further out strike if you wait a little bit for that VIX to come back and correct. So for me, the way that I like to do it here is, you know, I add a little bit of each of these stocks that I love to hold every time they're really driving down strongly. I don't like to add huge full double, triple down positions unless it's like a severe, severe crash in that stock. And I think nothing else has changed about the company. Some of the good methods to do so, you know, add dollar cost averaging to your toolbox. You you add $500 a week of mealy, whatever price it is, you know, on drops. If it's down, you know, you can have that set on your brokerages to do something like that. Um, but in my opinion, it's really dangerous to just start playing a ton of like call options or put options on both ways. If we're crashing, but you can see how quickly put premium can come out of the downside when things recover. And if we're rallying, you can see how quickly things can come out of the call side when we dive. So I like to do a lot of stock in this area because it's a lot harder to get premium burnt when there's no premium, you know? So when I look for specific stock entries, I like to look at the long-term trend lines, right? Like I was talking about these weeklies and these monthly lines, so these candles drawing out a lot of the noise, making it a lot easier for you to see where the support and resistance is. And we've talked about this before, but I love trend spiders, anchored VWAP, anchored volume weighted average price. So that kind of tells you from a certain anchor point, where is the majority of the buying and selling happening? So that usually becomes a huge support or resistance level. And if a couple of these indicators can line up, right, if the overall market trend line, which has been a really similar trend line going all the way back to April on the NASDAQ, on the S&P 500, and on the Russell. So these things are bottoming at similar angled lines on the downside, and they're topping at similar angled lines on, on the upside. So when you look at that and say, well, you know, that kind of looks like a good place for the market to possibly bottom. And then you look, well, one of my stocks is hitting right at the perfect volume weighted average price, and it's hitting their own downward trend line support. So all those things kind of go together. And if you get enough of those indicators, for me, that's when I start taking a position. So I'll either go in stocks. If I do calls, I'll do a spread there. So if I'm wrong and the market does keep dropping or that individual stock keeps dropping, those spreads make it a lot cheaper for me to play and I lose a lot less money. Of course, if it rallies back insanely, I'm capping my upside gains, but it's all about risk reward. So I'm happy to buy more stock there, play a little bit heavier and pushing the envelope by doing some weekly spreads or some leap spreads a couple of weeks out, maybe a month out or so. That's kind of the way that I like to do my entries, but it has to go with 
the news flow, the general market sentiment of where it is on the trend line, where it is rising or falling at that time, and then the individual stocks own news and that own technical for that stock as well. So it's kind of like four layers. And when they all check out, you know, hit the checkbox. And that's when I'm going to start going to get into a lot of these different ones. One more question before we get into US China. This is going to be fun. So at risk throttle says, what are your thoughts on the risk reward of Bill Ackman's spec? Yeah, I think Bill Ackman's SPAC, P-S-T-H um, dot U is, I think it's what it's traded on in most brokerages. Uh, so it's Perishing Square SPAC. Bill Ackman's got a ton of money in it himself. Um, I actually do like the risk reward of it. And they were talking about possibly merging or you know doing their deal with Airbnb. I don't like Airbnb as a company. I think it's very similar to like Uber in the terms of someone can easily usurp them and it, it's possibly not going to grow as big as it will you know as it should because it's going to be so priced highly so i think that it's actually even better now that he's probably not going to go and take on airbnb once again i love chamath specs the ipoc and ipob and i think the risk reward on them can be great you saw what space did from 10 to 42 you saw nicola from 10 to 93 so any of these specs that are run by really good management teams and people who have had experience in this area or experience investing and being hedge fund managers in the past that have done successfully, I think those are great risk rewards. A lot of these SPACs that are just kind of random people you don't really know about and their track record's not amazing in investing in general, I give less credence to them. I don't really want to follow their SPACs or invest in their ideas because at the core, you're really only investing in the management team and you're betting that they're going to make a good choice for their merger and acquisition. We have another Avi injection question about crypto. I got murdered so far on Link. Is this thing real or should I run for the hills? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's definitely real. And I just think that crypto is starting to follow the general markets, right? All, almost you know, all of them are going to all-time highs besides Bitcoin, which you know, had a huge spike to 19,000. It's hard to get back there because of how big the market cap is and the way that people consider Bitcoin as an investment vehicle. Ethereum hit almost 500 and then it tanked all the way down to 300s. Chainlink went to, I think, 22 down to almost 10. So what people are doing is just taking money out of these like riskful assets assets in the same way that they're taking money out of the tech sector in the market, because that's where the growth is. And I think that people like to consider now cryptocurrency in the same basket as text. But I did add to my link position. I did add to my Ethereum position, because for me, this is like the, the definition of dollar cost averaging, right? Like cryptos trade 24 seven, they can spike and dip on most random of things. So for me, I'm just going to dollar cost average and continue them. I definitely think they're real. Bitcoin is definitely your safest bet. That's going to drop the least if the crypto market crashes. And it's going to rise the least compared to the other high flyers. But that's like your blue chip. I'm going to buy set just the S&P 500 would be Bitcoin. So I'm looking at my watch here, Tony. It's going tick. It's going talk. It's ticking. It's talking. Is time running out here for US and China? I just saw today, China's trying to set this global data security rules, which seems a little bit to me like, the thief is guarding the bank here. Can you touch a little bit here on, on what's going on? And of course, TikTok was not just a funny wordplay right there. TikTok's kind of front center of all of this as well for retail investors. And what did Donald Trump say here? Yeah, I think Trump came out, I think just an hour or so after China you know, posted this, uh, what they're going to be doing with the data security rules. And he said, China faces decoupling or massive terrorists from the US. So I hope he's just doing this to make them back down because as we've seen every time there's China-US tensions, it's about a 10% drop. Maybe this was priced in because they knew the news ahead of time, but obviously SoftBank selling a huge stake 
did our 10%. So maybe this has got more to run. I hope that this is going to be kind of figured out in the next few days. Um, otherwise, the markets will face that China pressure and a lot of those Chinese stocks will get a lot of spanking on the way downside. Get Rich or Die Trying guy asking a lot of questions today, but they're great questions. He said, happy Saturday to you, AO. As I'm relaxing and pondering the market, my mind keeps going back to that Chinese headline about selling 20% of their US holdings. Any thoughts on that? Fake news? Sometimes markets are slow to react. Hmm. Well, get Richard Die trying. Well, the chi- Chinese, they're just selling 20% of the US Treasury holdings, which are only about a, bi- a trillion dollars. So they're selling about $200 billion. And that could have been the reason for the Treasury yield rise recently. Obviously, as they sell bonds, the yields go up. As they buy bonds, yields you know, go down. That's just the inverse relationship between bonds and yields. But I don't think that this is going to be like a huge, huge issue. I think that Trump is not going to be in a position where he wants to have these huge flaring tensions go into the election unless he can squash them and come out as a quote-unquote winner before the time is necessary for people to make their votes. In terms of TikTok here, really interesting that we keep talking about this because they have such differing rules every week on what's going to be happening here. Nick Rosen said, would love to know your thoughts on Fastly and Walmart. Microsoft deadline is coming up for TikTok. Originally, TikTok had a September 20th deadline. Now it's until November 12th. So Really interesting to see what's going to happen here. They keep pushing this back, and it's now over the date of the election. So it's a good chance that this doesn't finalize until the election's over with. In my opinion, it should finalize. I think that TikTok's not going to be able to stay in limbo for so long, and it's going to damage their business. And obviously, you see SoftBank is very, very avid in the U.S. market, and they own ByteDance, which owns TikTok. So I do still think a resolution would come. I would obviously think that Walmart and Microsoft would win. They're just the strongest powerhouse duo. I've just not seen anything so strong since Rocky and Rocky IV. Ooh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think obviously, you know, Fast is going to be the biggest beneficiary of that. Yeah. So what, what's good with Fastly? I know I'm a huge holder. I know you're a big holder. And long term, I absolutely love this stock. I just think edge computing is going to be the future. You mentioned we're not even at the tip of the iceberg for edge computing, but TikTok is such a massive uh, implications here for Fastly. TikTok has about 12%. We dug in a little bit further, of course, uh, and realized it's only about 6% of their business here in the US. I am a huge holder of Fastly. I believe in it long term. Edge computing is at the tip of its iceberg right now. But in the short term, is this super contingent on what happens here with TikTok? Or what do you see towards the end of the year here with Fastly? Yeah, I mean, I think if they can get this deal done in TikTok and someone in the US buys them out, you're going to see a huge increase. They just did a really good acquisition. And apparently the the company that they bought through the acquisition does $28 million a year in revenue at 82% gross margins, which is more than 10% of Fastly's revenue overall, right? So that's more than all of TikTok is, right? Like a 6% of the non-Chinese-based things that Fastly is already a customer for with TikTok. So that, that I mean, that covers it. There's, in my opinion, Fastly is really oversold and really dropped. But if the market does continue to sell tech, it'll obviously see a little bit more sideways action, possibly some more downside. But if things get better and if this deal goes through, I think Fastly might be one of the biggest upside movers in the entire tech space just because of this double, you know, this double whammy of news and the uncertainty kind of coming out of it a bit. We're talking about the pounders. We're talking about the flounders, the fish. A lot of ocean <laughs> references here on this episode. And it is time for the pounders thesis picks. Now, before we jump right into it, we love Pound Nation. We love everyone submitting their picks. But this is a thesis pick. So you guys, you need to also put a thesis not just the ticker symbol. So Anthony and I went ahead with our own Pounders thesis picks this week's, and Tony 
please give us your Pounders thesis pick of the week here. My pleasure, Avi. I would say <laughs> ISRG Intuitive Surgical is my thesis pick. And you could just see the relative strength in this stock versus the entire market. I mean, this thing was getting bought hand over fist before we decided to drop down in the markets. And when it did drop down, it didn't go down, you know, 20, 30% like a lot of these other, you know, big companies. Even Google went from 1725 to mid 1500s. I mean, that's a huge drop for that big of a company. But ISRG only went from 777 to uh, you know, 7.30. So, and, and, it, and it made that run in the days coming. So I think that's going to be something to look for for upside as it's so strong in this market, whether it's down or up. And their revenues, let's talk about a little bit. There's been a lot of concerns because I, ISRG, they're, you know, the bulk of what they do is elective surgeries. So those elective surgeries were not on the, the pedestal during COVID. People had to take care of the bigger pressing issue at hand. But now that things are getting better and you see that there's less COVID cases, less COVID deaths, way less hospitalizations, ICU beds are way more open than they were in the past. This revenue, I think, is going to really skyrocket. I think all the analysts have it way lower because think about it. If you have an elective surgery that you wanted to get done and you didn't get it done because of COVID, well, I think everyone would probably rush to get it done as soon as possible. So in my opinion, that's going to be a huge estimate increase for what they're going to be projecting in revenue and profits. So in September 2019, they had an EPS of 333 and the forecast was 235. December 2019, it was 2.99 with the forecast being 2.77. March 2020, it was 2.62 versus 2.19. And June 2020, it was 0.57 and the forecast was 0.59. So you can see that these earnings for quarter to quarter have gone down a lot. And you know, the good thing, in my opinion, is that in quarter three, it's projected to go back to 1.62. And in quarter four, it's going to go back to 2.52 earnings per share. So as COVID, as COVID declines, these elective surgeries will increase tons because they were basically at zero during when all this was happening. And you know, the stock has been basing for years and years. And when it does roll, it rolls heavy. So it's finally starting to roll. That 700 level was a wall, and you saw it increase almost 10% right after it ran. So I'm going to pound the table on this one. It's going to be one of my bigger holdings moving forward, probably in the top 10, maybe in the top five. But yeah, I'm pounding this one. This is my thesis pick. Love that one. I got in early on that. And then, of course, I sold. But I think I'm, I'm probably going to make a new entry. I remember Sammy, aka Smarter Trader, had once said 3000 was his price target for ISRG. I, I, know. I agree. Okay, you had mentioned a thousand uh, previously to me. So you think in a year from now, two years from now, when does it get there? I think that in a year from now, it could get to a thousand easily. It could even happen in a few months because once things get close to a thousand, that magnet to the thousand psychology level is huge. But you know, long term, I think this is going to be one of those like steady moving upward stocks. Artificially intelligent surgeries will be the future, and whether they're elective or necessary surgeries, ISRG continues to get more and more patents for more and more elective surgeries and non-elective surgeries. So, in my opinion, that's really going to be a huge, huge stock in the next five to ten years. So, yeah, I know I love my thesis pick, obviously, because you know I chose it. But Avi, the world wants to know. I want to know what's your pick. Thank you, Tony. I'm actually pretty on fire for being just the face of the podcast while you're the brains. <laughs> I have had some nice thesis picks. So crowd is my thesis pick. I know crowds ran incredibly. It is my baby. I've had this thing since 60. I just think it's going to continue to run. It had a little pullback. I don't think right away it's going to continue to rise right off the gates here. But I think over time, this is just a great long-term hold. Uh, CrowdStrike, for those of you who do not know, ticker symbol CRWD, they're the leader in their space in cybersecurity. One, 
Crowd strike on their quarter two reports. Uh, revenue was just under 200 million, way well ahead of its consensus estimate of 188 million for Q2 sales. Earnings were 0.03 per share versus the 0.01 share loss that analysts had forecasted. A few banks uh, raised CrowdStrike. I saw Truist Financial raise their price target to 170, so a little over 30% upside there. CrowdStrike CEO said something very interesting. They had a 154% increase in cyber attacks year on year. So I just think with people continuing to work from home, especially some of these larger companies that are probably the most at risk when it comes to cyber attacks, I just absolutely love that company. I love the space. And of course, they're the leader in the space. So long-term hold for me, but I absolutely love Crowd. I think they're going to blow it out of the water for Q3. Yeah. And I know a lot of these stocks that we talk about, you know, they had great earnings reports and some of them, you know, went down a little bit or they didn't really move much. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of people are like, oh, why didn't it shoot up 50% like Zoom did? Well, obviously, Zoom's quarter was ridiculous. And that was probably the best quarter beat. I think we said this again like recently. like It was the best quarter beat last quarter like ever for a stock. And it's now, once again, the best quarter beat ever for a stock. So that's in its own world. Obviously, that retraced too. So a lot of these stocks are just kind of going and lining up with their multiples, their future earnings per share, their future revenues, margins, cash flow, all that. So they're really kind of just getting to the appropriate price that they should be at. So when you see a stock that had great earnings reports and isn't exploding. Well, I mean, it's kind of priced fairly for that time. And that's what most people are thinking. If it dives and it is, you know, priced a little bit higher than most people want at that point based on that earnings report. And if it explodes, it's obviously undervalued based on what the, you know, investor base and the world thinks at that time. That reaction has so much to do with what people think the value of that company can be. And obviously that can expand or contract depending on whatever news happens. But I don't really think it's bad when a stock that has risen up into its earning like crowd did it went from i think 95 um at that low recently to over 150 after hours before they reported right so it just balanced out that move in my opinion and i agree i think it's a great long-term holding i have it myself and i've recently just bought back in because you know it's okay to be wrong it's not okay to stay wrong a crowd of course is one of the big growth cybersecurity SAS stocks. Bruce asked AO, do we expect growth stonks to bounce back next week? Way, way oversold. And I do agree that a lot of them are way oversold. And you know, compared to where their PEs have been sitting, their valuations have been sitting for the last few months. But I don't think that this is going to be a top for those. I think that if the market crashes, obviously we'll continue to get selling across the broad bases of different asset classes, whether it's growth or cyclicals, big tech indices, all of that will obviously go down. But I do think that growth growth stocks coming down so much recently is already a strong move downward. So if it were me, what I'm going to be buying, and I learned this in March, right? You want to buy the market leaders. It's your natural tendency to buy the Amazons, the Googles, the Microsofts, the Facebooks. But the highest upside when the market does reverse is these growth stocks. So that's going to be what I'll be adding to instead of getting rid of more. We are the only financial podcast that you will hear the term being cucked. So Tesla was recently cucked. Everyone thought that Tesla was going to be in the S&P 500. Instead, the S&P was listening to pounding the table because they took your thesis pick from last week, Etsy, and threw them right in there. So what went on there? And do you think it's stupid that Tesla was not added? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, of course, they didn't add them and they were saying this, you know, they dropped three big companies, I mean, big companies, not that big anymore. They dropped Kohl's and a few other retailers that have gotten smacked recently because of COVID. But they should have added the seventh biggest market cap company in the US. Like that's it's absurd to me that they didn't add it. And they, they said that it was because regulatory credits made up a ton of their revenue and income. And they said they don't need it moving forward. Tesla said this. So it's possible that in the next quarter it's added or even earlier. In my opinion, it has to be a matter of time before it gets added. You know, If it's not this round, it'll be the next round, but it will join the S&P 500. You can't have a company that's that big, seventh biggest company that trades in the US market, not get added to the S&P 500. It's just, it's just a matter of time. It'll happen. You don't want to see Elon angry either. You challenge Elon, he will wipe dirt all over you. Without further ado, Tony, it is time for Tony's rules, but no S this time because it's only one rule, but this one is a complete doozy. Tony, what is your rule this week? The biggest rule I've got for you this week might be in my top three biggest rules of all time because it's so key. The rule is to act on your instincts and your gut feelings. So I did call the top I, like perfectly too. Like in that range, I could have given an exact number, but I probably would have screwed myself if I didn't. And I did move into some cash positions. I did hedge accordingly, but I was so strongly of the belief that we would reverse there that I should have sold the entirety of my holdings and gotten back in because I had a lot of better opportunities, right? Like moving into 25% cash or so and moving into stocks versus leaps did protect the bulk of my capital. I did really, really well in that time. You know, I had those VXX calls. I had those SPX puts and that saved my ass for lack of better words. But had I just sold everything and just had a few hedges on, kept those SPX puts and those VXX calls, I would have fared far, far better. And I would have had the cash, you know, the opportunity cost of my capital. Now I have to wait for some of my big holdings to come back up. And at that point, you know, I was thinking, well, taxes make it worth it, but it, nothing makes it worth it. You know, like I always say, if you want to hold something that you got a 30, that's now 120. But if it goes to 90, like, you're going to be happier just buying it back at 90 and letting it go higher than having to worry about your taxes. So that's a Tony kind of rule change a little bit there. It's just so much more important to act on your instincts because it's not for that specific trade that you should do it. It's for the bulk of your portfolio. It's for your entire holdings. If you have a bunch of stocks that you love long-term, you got them way cheaper and they're diving, you still would be happier if you had sold at the top and gotten back in, regardless of taxes, regardless of whatever else you think. So if you have a gut feeling, if you have instincts, put your money where your mouth is. Don't be scared to just really trust yourself Obviously, don't put yourself in a position where you blow yourself up. I mean, I'm not saying like if you think the market's going to rally, put your whole portfolio into weekly call options, but no one ever went broke taking a profit. So make sure you act on your instincts, especially when it's freaking crucial. It is time we get into pounding the table questions from the audience. So JMO Money starting to become a regular here. He's asking, what are the best tickers if we want to try to play a potential downturn? In March, AO, you call that epic SQQQ puts play. That absolutely went insane. Is there any similar plays in case we move further down? I know we touched on this a little bit previously, but anything specifically? Yeah, I mean, just want to hammer home again those SPY puts. You know, if you've got a portfolio that's pretty diversified between the different sectors in the market, QQQ puts, if you've got a primarily tech weighted portfolio, VXX calls just for overall volatility increases. Once again, that can go up as the market goes up and it will definitely go up as the market goes down. That SQQQ put a uh, play that I did back in March was when the market was so, so down. And I know that these triple leverage ETFs, they have that contango, they have that decay factor into them. 
So you could have gotten these puts is $10 away and the stock was at like 26, but the April, June 15s were like 10 cents, 15 cents. And those went to five or six. So that is a great play. In my opinion, if we ever get a really, really strong crash, buying puts on those short-term triple leverage uh, ETF inverse plays like SQQQ is a fantastic play as well. Speaking of different sectors, Tony, at Interreal3306 said, airlines, restaurants, theaters, and cruise lines reminds me of lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. So let's call it the art C. Airlines, restaurants, theaters, and cruises. Love to hear some of your thoughts, such as the great runs in the last couple of days, each one seemingly so far away from recovery and some dangerously close to bankruptcy. Are these things, is this a fake little pump or you think people are buying some of this uh, on the low? I think a lot of people are buying this. I think people are just continuing to see the COVID data and realizing that it's just going to be a matter of time before it's completely gone. You know, hopefully I'm not an epidemiologist for the seventh time, but I'm a data man and I'm looking at the data and it's looking like if other countries can kind of get rid of it, then we can too. And, you know, in general, the humanity can get rid of it at some point. You know, I'm not saying it can't come back, not saying it can't evolve, but for this specific, you know, COVID outbreak that we're having, this is this is why those rut stocks got so crashed. This is why the airlines, the theaters, the cruises, you know, the restaurants, travel, hotels, all of those have gotten killed. So once again, I'm continuing to add to my SPG position. I think it's a matter of time. And I love the fact that they're branching out with what they're typically have been doing in the past with the Amazon Warehouse Fulfillment Center deal with JCPenney stores. You know, they're retrofitting those. So I think that that whole area still has a lot of opportunity. And you saw that when the market was crashing, they weren't selling these. People were buying these as a flight to safety. So once again, if you want to talk about hedges and diversification, as much as these companies, like obviously, I don't like the airlines. I think UAL is the best and DAL is the best, but they all suck in general. I don't like theaters. I think that theaters will go obsolete, you know, and cruises, no one needs to go on a cruise. But still, these things haven't gone bankrupt yet. These things are holding well, and people are not selling them when the market's crashing. So clearly, they see some upside there. I think that if you wanted to, you know, diversify between some cyclicals and some, you know, value quote unquote stocks, this would be the place to do it in like SPG booking, IWM stuff like that. Theaters are super interesting. I know Amazon had that like rumor to buy AMC, Amazon Prime directly to theaters. Could be interesting. I'm with you though. I think they're kind of dead overall. But talking about COVID and some of these stay-at-home stocks, Peloton has been in the news recently. They got earnings this week. What are your thoughts on Peloton heading into earnings right now? Shout out to Jayster and Biz. Big ups, my guy, always. Thanks for the support and follows. Your question here, where do you see Peloton by the end of the week? Seems like they're going to crush earnings. We're probably going to see five months worth of data between the reported quarter and raised guidance. I could see them doing 200% year-over-year rev growth for the quarter. Plus, they might show some new products. I don't disagree with you at all. You know, Peloton is one that I was playing in the 30s. Totally missed it as I didn't capture the full story of what it's going to be. Um, but I do think that people are going to continue to be working out from home, like working out from home, work from home, kind of cool. But people are not going to be as into going to the gyms once they found the luxury of going and staying in their own homes to get that workout in. But I think Peloton just makes it a lot easier for those people to get that workout in without having to go through all the extra steps of working out, getting a gym membership, going to the gym every day, coming back from the gym every day showering when you get back after being dirty for a couple hours, you know, in COVID infested gyms. So I don't think that's going to be something that changes in the coming months. So yeah, I'm, I would say I'm a buyer of Peloton. It might be a little propped up now because it's already run so much into their earnings. But once again, as we said with crowd, you know, if it drops a little bit or it stays pretty flat, you know, people are at least valuing it here, which it is quite higher than it was IPO'd at. 
Shout out to the Cash Kid, too. Cash Kid is one of my good buddies. Jacob Gluck owns Goza Tequila, phenomenal tequila company. But I just want to give a quick thank you for sharing your Peloton login with me and allowing me to get my workout on. So huge big ups. All right. And we got another regular here. Sully R.Y. Ryan Sullivan's asking, after calling the short-term top and previously stating 100 to 200 SPX drop before returning the rocket ship outlook, is that still unchanged? Yeah, I mean, I think that we corrected so much so quickly. Obviously, we ran a ton, you know, in the overall. If you look at the last four or five months, it's just been an incredible rally. But when things drop so quickly and aggressively, you know, if they continue to drop, you know, there's true weakness in the market. But the way that we went from negative 100 to green on the S&P 500 on Friday shows me that buyers are there waiting and ready. So if we do come back and rally and break over our previous highs, like I'm going to pound another target here and I could be wrong, right? Like a break under 3,300 really invalidates that under last week's low of 3,349 also can start to invalidate that. So I'll give it a 50 point range, 3,300 to 3,350. If we close below that, I think we could continue dropping. But once again, the Fed is happy to step in at any time, in my opinion. I think the fact that interest rates are so low, people need to go chase yield, which is in those growth stocks and those tech companies. And we did drop to about my target, which was 33.97. Obviously, this is why I give those 50-point ranges because we went all the way down to 33.49. But I do think rocket ship mode's coming. If we go back over our recent highs of 35.86 or so, then I would say 37.24. And if that breaks, I mean, like you could get an insane squeeze if SoftBank runs it back, or if other firms jump in and does it and do the same thing as they're doing. So 37.24 would be my first upwards level because that's the top of the channel projected move based on how fast we dropped and how fast we rallied last time. So S&P 500, 37.24, I'll pound that one more time. And if that breaks and we break over the channel, which is what the Qs did, right? They had one retest, then they went lower and then they broke out and they went parabolic after. So 38.95 really wouldn't be out of the question. And I know I sound like a madman on crack right now, but it's really, really possible. You just got to look for that area on the downside to not break. All right, last question here, Tony, from at Zen Options, Gregory Scott. Huge shout out to Gregory, too, by the way. Last week, he did give me the idea for Spotify. So want to give credit where credit's due. Definitely check him out at Zen Options. He's asking this week, what are the five or 10 companies that are currently under or near $100 billion in market cap that you think have the best chance of being a trillion dollar company in the next decade? Well, uh, Greg Scott, I love this uh, question because you're basically asking me what stocks do I hold in the, in the largest amounts, right? Because the only things I like to invest in are things under or near $100 billion that I think can 10x in the next decade. So if you want to know my top five holdings, here they are, or they, you know, I will be adjusting to get this being my top five holdings. Livongo, obviously with the TDOC merger, I think they're going to be the leaders in telehealth and telemedicine monitoring. That's really no question for me. I think that is definitely the future of healthcare. So I think that that has really big potential. And that's only about 30 billion or so right now, uh, combined value. So that could be a 30x in the next decade. Maybe it takes a little longer, but that's probably one of my strongest convicted stocks, definitely in my top five holdings. Mercado Libre, you know, as I've said a bunch of times, they have so many different arms now that are doing so well. They're expanding insanely. They basically have like just a strong, strong foothold in Latin America which is you know twice the amount of population as the US and they're just now getting more and more into payment processing, you know credit cards, 
uh, e-commerce, of course. So that's going to be huge for that area. It'll you know probably lead to some strong industrialization just in the Latin American area as in general. SE Limited, you know, C Limited, that company, once again, phenomenal. You know, 25% of their ownership comes from Tencent, which we know is a huge beast. The Shopee Pay is going insane. Their e-commerce leg is going insane. Their games are nuts. You know, people are, I think, are resonating at like two and a half hours a day or spent playing games in Southeast Asia. So people love SE and I don't think that's going to stop. And they're really only worried. They're only valued about a three, two, one. And they're only really valued about 60 billion right now. So that's got a lot of upside. ISRG, you know, we've talked about this a little bit recently in this in this episode, but I think that has one of the easiest trajectories to get to a trillion dollar valuation. I mean, why would you want a person's hands to cut into you when you can have an artificially intelligent robot who's run billions of more scenarios and can do way more tedious and meticulous work on your body than a human can? I read somewhere that ISRG can do surgeries that majority of people or anyone at all can't do. So obviously that's the biggest kind of moat you can get for a company that does surgeries. One last one I want to touch on, and this one is probably a little bit riskier in terms of like, does it get to a trillion dollars? I think it can get to easily 300 to 400 billion, but a trillion dollars would require it to take a lot of initiative in its current, you know, arms that it's trying to get into like Square, um, SQ, that's starting, they're getting into cryptocurrency, they're doing commercial loans for, you know, $200 a piece kind of thing. So they're really just trying to do different branches of their payment processing sector. Um, and I think that that's just going to be a huge run or two in the coming years. You see what happened at PayPal. I think Square is basically PayPal with a little bit more tech induced into it. So for me, those are my top five. Square's cash app reports BTC quarterly revenue soaring 367% to 306 million. They got a lot going on there for, uh, for Square. Yeah, and I know we talked about this last time that the line item of their Bitcoin revenue went up because Bitcoin went up so much in the last quarter. But once again, you know, just the fact that they're getting into that space and they're smart enough to use that to like kind of mitigate those transaction costs between different, you know, foreign currencies, that's uh, only a smart company would do that. You can say Massive. what they want about their revenue, but it's smart to do that in general. Let's get into earnings, Tony. We got some interesting ones this week, uh, some stay at homes. Tuesday, we got Slack which is work. We got Lululemon, Hoopa Software. On Wednesday, we have Zscaler, which is in that cybersecurity space that we were talking about. Big Commerce is another company that we've discussed on previous episodes. Uh, on Thursday, we have Chewy. So all those dog lovers and animal lovers out there. Peloton, Oracle, and Dave and & Busters. And then Friday, we have Kroger. So any of those earnings that, that you'll be buying here this week? Yeah, you know, Lulu, I ran all the way up from 220 and I sold out. I thought I was a genius for selling out a 328 and the thing went to 400. So you can see that people are really buying these like luxury retail items and they're not really stopping. So you can see that I think Lululemon will probably do well. They might sell off again since they ran up so much, but if it does sell off not too much, then it's really going into its, you know, price to earnings future ratio and it's going into its valuation. So that'd be really bullish. Coupa software, I know that one has a really high valuation, but once again, you know, what's valuation in the in the cloud space. So that I think a lot of people are interested in. I had a holding in that, sold that off, but I probably will be getting back into it for earnings just in terms of stock. I don't want to be buying uh, long-term options or even weeklies, especially for their earnings. Because even these great companies that can produce a great revenue uh, for their quarter could still sell off strongly. Zscaler, one of my holdings, I have stock in that and I won't be letting that go. I think that it could do well, similar to Crowd, but still, you know, once again, get sold off and move back into its multiple. 
Big Commerce, complete wild card. I have no idea what the hell is going to happen there, but that Facebook news on it is huge. And I don't think a lot of people will be dumping that super heavily on their earnings because I'm sure their earnings are going to be blowouts like Shopify was, even though their multiple is way, way higher. Spade is a spade here. Uh, Thursday, you know, Peloton, we talked about that earlier. Dave and Busters, though. I know Dave and Busters, ticker symbol play, P-L-A-Y. They have huge short interest. And that actually hasn't been going down at all uh, during this market crash. I think it actually increased over like 10 or 15%. So Dave and Busters definitely wanted to look out for if they didn't report the world's worst quarter, which is everyone's expectation for it because of you know the business that they're doing. How many people are going to Dave and Busters right now versus how many people did? That could just explode because of the amount of shorts on it in the float. Yeah, Big C is interesting to me. It dropped pretty significantly. I think at its low last week, I'm looking here, it was like $85, $84. Came back up right away. And so that one will be certainly one to watch, uh, especially with e-commerce continuing to explode. What other stocks do you want to keep an eye on? So in other words, what are, is Tony going to be pounding here over the next couple months? Yeah, I want to reiterate that if the market continues to go lower, most of these stocks will go lower as well. That's just kind of how that works, right? The indices are made up of 500 stocks. If the indices go down, then more than 500 stocks are going down usually. So, you know, regardless though, I'm looking at Fastly. I think that that news, anything that can come out of that will, you know, if it's good news, it'll be super bullish for the stock. I love the acquisition they just did. So definitely going to be keeping an eye on that one and pounding that. It did a really strong recovery. It went all the way down to 72 and closed over 80. So People are not wanting to dump this thing back to 40 like most people think. ISRG, we told you, you know, this thing's super strong in this market. I don't think that's going to be changing anytime soon. In fact, it held up so well that if we reverse, it'll go over 800, in my opinion, pretty quickly. LVGO, we got a good drop at 116 there. I actually loaded more of that area just because it's one of my bigger holdings. But that, for me, is a matter of time. Like People want to know the merger announcement date. They want to know a lot of details about it. So they just want, kind of want them to merge so they can adequately size up their portfolio percentage-wise between LVGO or TDOC, which will all become TDOC in the future. NVIDIA, I think NVIDIA was one of those big stocks that was getting pumped by SoftBank and other companies. That thing was up 40 bucks pre-market on Wednesday or something, which never, I mean, that doesn't even happen if NVIDIA has earnings. So that can easily come back up if they want to do the round two into the markets. Netflix, they did that free trial where you can use Netflix and have part of the shows that they produce and part of their content for free. Once again, if you can get people through the door and they get addicted a little bit, they'll pay that upcharge to go to a premium model. Nanox held so, so well during this crash, you know, went from 20 to 43. What a move. You know, I, I'm, I haven't really sold any of this besides, you know, just for percentage of my portfolio basis. It went up too much. <laughs> Bad problem to have, I guess. It went up 100 and. 20% or so right off of its IPO. So I did have to trim some just to make sure I don't have too much in one specific stock. Google was in a similar situation as NVIDIA. That thing went crazy because of these big companies buying these out the money call on tech options. That can easily reverse. MDB and Docu, good earnings, went down just because of the sell-off. Definitely something to watch. You know, we talked about Etsy a little bit. Etsy got added to the S&P 500, one of my bigger holdings as well. I think that one's in the top 10. So I'll be watching that as well. As we've said before, you know, Motley Fool, when they talk about a stock, when they love a stock, like they love our Nanox and they love our OTRK, they love Fiverr now, which we love too, from 94, when we first started talking about this on the podcast. So that went up really well, even when the market was crashing because of the Motley Fool's, you know, thumbs up in that. So those are all things I want to watch out for. Obviously, I'm still accumulating IWM leaps because that's easily for me the 
the less risk you know of an index that you can have versus the tech sector or even the S&P 500. Tony, it feels like Pokemon. You got to catch all of these stocks, baby. Want to give a huge, huge shout out to all of our fans. Can't thank you guys enough. Every single episode, we're growing and growing. We have people shouting us on Twitter. So thank you so much. We are going to be on the top 10 Spotify playlist at some point <laughs> in the near future. Want to remind everyone that we do have this logo contest going on. So if you guys are great artists or no great artists, please let's not raise Fiverr stock anymore and have us buy our logo <laughs> off Fiverr. Please uh, send them in. You can DM us or you can shoot it out in the public. Happy to vote on it. Uh, huge shout out to everyone who has supported the podcast on the Anchor link. Really appreciate it. Just allows us to continue to get better every single episode. Tony, take it away. Yeah, I know a lot of people might be, you know, feeling up and down about the markets the last few weeks. You had a huge rally. You made a ton of money, you know, then you gave some back because of the crash. But just know that that's part of the game. Market does not go up every day all the time, even though I love Portnoy. But you got to make sure that you put yourself in a position where you're going to be comfortable if tomorrow the floodgates open and we're down like we are in March. So just protect yourself because you're going to be happy being able to trade another day versus squeezing out for that last three or 4% move always better to take a profit than go broke at the end of the day you know we do this for our fans we love you guys a lot people are posting our podcasts on people asking for you know what good finance sources or podcast should i be listening to so big thanks for putting us out into the world even more and we'll be here every week for you guys so keep pounding pounder nation and you know we'll be here next week all right folks everyone enjoy the rest of your long labor day weekend and tony send us off as you always do have a great trading week, Pounders. <laughs> Let's go, Pound Nation. See you next week. <laughs>